All right, many of you um, may be familiar with the ministry of Grace on Campus UCLA. It is a um, ministry of Grace Community Church on the campus of UCLA, and it's a ministry that is near and dear to my heart. Um, it's the ministry that I got saved in. Um, all three of my siblings also went to UCLA and were part of the ministry of Grace on Campus. And there's a little joke that we call it the, there's a dang dynasty that uh, for myself to my youngest brother, there were 15 years where one of us was at Grace on Campus UCLA and we all served in the admin team, just like Lindsey Hahn is serving in the admin team as well. Um, we call that jokingly the, the dang dynasty, but really it's a, it's a testament of God's faithfulness and God's grace in my family's life. I'm so thankful for the ways that he's blessed my family through that ministry. Uh, there's one man who has superseded the Dang Dynasty by himself, and that's Jim Ayers, our speaker today. And he's been at that ministry, UCLA Grace on Campus. Uh, I arrived in 90, 92, he got there in 94, and he's still there. Um, so where the Dang, the Dang Dynasty was 15 years, the Ayers Dynasty with one person is going on 18, 19 years now. So again, it's not to, to laud the man, but it's um, to remember God's faithfulness and the ways that he uses um, believers to minister to his church. And so um, it's a joy for me to introduce Jim to you. Uh, he's been ministering, as I said, at UCLA since 1994. He was an engineering major, I believe. He got his uh, bachelor's and master's in engineering uh, through UCLA. And then he, because two degrees weren't enough, he got uh, uh, MDiv and also a master's in theology, also Jim, through master's seminary. Um, so four degrees there. He's currently working as an engineer on satellite systems, but he and his wife and three kids, Caleb, Titus, and Mariah, will be leaving for uh, Malawi as missionaries in January. And so at the nine o'clock hour, we had a, a brief kind of introduction and an overview of the ministries that he'll be involved with there. We're looking forward to him bringing the word um, to us this morning. He's also gonna be one of the retreat speakers uh, for the singles portion of the retreat at the Ayers Hotel. There's no relationship between the Ayers Hotel and uh, our speaker, Jim Ayers. But um, we are uh, so encouraged, Jim, by you and Bethany, your testimony and your faith and the ways that the Lord has used you in my family's life and in the life of our church even now. We look forward to seeing how God's going to continue to use you. So let's give Jim a warm welcome. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you for that introduction, Huey. I, yeah, I remember catching a ride to Grace Church with Huey uh, as a freshman, one of my first times there, and I was really being exposed to expository preaching, verse by verse expository preaching for the first time. And I just couldn't get over how slowly they moved through a book. And I said, I think I was talking and saying something like this to Huey, and I'm like, it's going to take years to get through a book of the Bible like this. And we were in 2 Corinthians at the time, and he flipped over, and he was like a junior, I think. Junior? Senior? <laughs> he flipped over in his notebook. He had all the notes back from when he was a freshman, and sure enough, they were in the same book of the Bible. <laughs> so uh, it's a, a privilege, a pleasure to be here this morning, um, this church. I just, as Huey said, I mean, I, I know a lot of people have come through that ministry at Grace on Campus at UCLA and end up here at this church. And, and so in many ways, we really feel connected to this church, like this is kind of our church away from home, uh, church away from church type thing. And, and so it is, it's, it's just been fun to drop down here, here and there over the years and even to preach here for the first time. So thank you for that opportunity. Why don't we go ahead and just open this time in a word of prayer. God, earlier, we sang of your great love. We sang of your love and how you sent your son to rescue us. What a privilege that is. That's something we so take for granted, Lord. Because of your son and the work that he has done, we stand right before you. Because of your son, we didn't wake up in hell today. Lord, because of your son, there is such a thing as missions. There is a message to proclaim to the nations. And Lord, we ask that he, Jesus Christ, would be front and central this morning, that he would be the center stage, that I would fade to the background as we speak. And we ask these things in your name. 
Amen. Every year, there are thousands of court cases. Some civil, some criminal, there's small claims court. Every year, thousands of verdicts are rendered. Most have no impact on history, but some do. One is what has become to known as, as the Dred Scott decision, where an African-American slave sued to try and gain his freedom. Scott was born in 1795 into slavery in Southampton, Virginia. He was the property of the Blow family. Later, he was sold to John Emerson, who was a doctor serving in the US Army. And as a doctor, he traveled around. He would travel through different southern states, slave states. He would travel to northern states, free states, states where slavery was prohibited. Well, eventually, Dr. Emerson got married, and he moved back to the south. And Scott went with him on all of these journeys. A year after Dr. Emerson moved south, he died. And Scott sued, excuse me, first he tried to purchase his freedom from Dr. Emerson's widow. She refused and so he sued. He sued to try and gain his freedom. Well, after a decade of court reversals and appeals, eventually the course ends up at the Supreme Court. And this was their decision, this was their verdict said, any person of African ancestry, whether slave or free, is not a citizen of the United States. And since African Americans are not citizens, they do not possess the legal standing to bring suits to federal court. Because Scott had no standing to sue, the court lacked the jurisdiction in the matter, and Scott remained a slave. This verdict had far-reaching impacts, not necessarily the impact that the justices had hoped for. Do I need to do something with my mic? No? Please stand by. All right, does that sound better? No, anybody? Yeah, there we go, I got a couple nods. Thank you. So the Dred Scott decision had far-reaching effects on the nation. It was well-received by slaveholders in the South, but Northerners were outraged. The verdict greatly influenced the nomination of Abraham Lincoln to be a presidential candidate, and eventually, it led to his election to office. Ultimately, the South succeeded from the Union. The Civil War was sparked, which led to the abolition of slavery in the United States. One verdict, huge implication on history. I would suggest to you this morning that there is another verdict, another declaration that has had far greater impact on history. Impact that dwarfs that of the Dred Scott decision. Yet most people have never heard of this declaration. Most lawyers have never read it. Most people don't even know it exists. In Isaiah 49, we have an intra-Trinitarian discussion in this chapter, we have a discussion between God the Father and God the Son that took place in eternity past. A verdict was rendered, and it set history on its current course. So take your Bibles and turn with me to Isaiah 49 if you're not there already. This is our text for the morning. And I'm guessing that most of you didn't do your devotions in Isaiah this week. And so let me take a moment and, and bring you up to speed on Isaiah. 
After Solomon ruled the nation, there was a split. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Judah was the southern kingdom. The book of Isaiah, the prophecies in Isaiah were written to the southern kingdom. In the first half of the book, the nation is in sin. They're in sin and Isaiah warns them, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. Well, in the second half of the book, we're transported to the future. The nation has not repented. They've been taken into Babylonian captivity and Isaiah speaks to this future generation and he says, don't give up hope, blessing is coming. And there's this thread of salvation throughout the book, this salvation theme that I wanna pick up on this morning. It starts in chapter seven, where Isaiah predicts that there will be a child born of a virgin. will be named Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. In chapter 9, he says the government will rest upon his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Chapter 11, Isaiah says that he won't judge by what he sees or what he hears, but rather he will judge with righteousness. When he rules, there will be Garden of Eden-like conditions, such that the lion will lay down with the lamb. Children will play with cobras. Chapter 40, we see that there will be a, a forerunner that will precede his coming. And then we hit what have been called servant songs, four servant songs. They're a series of, of messages, oracles of salvation, where God says, he's, he, he talks about delivering the nation and he's gonna send this servant who will be his instrument that he will use to rescue the nation. The fourth servant song is probably the most well-known. In chapter 53, reads, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. This morning, we're gonna look at the second servant song. In this servant song, the servant's mission is delineated. This has been called the great commission of the Old Testament. And I believe that this this is the heartbeat behind Jesus' words in Matthew 28, where he tells his followers to go and make disciples of all nations. In Isaiah 49, we see three commitments of the Lord's servant. If you're taking notes this morning, that's my outline. Three commitments of the Lord's servant that should move us to fulfill the Great Commission. See, in this passage, there are three commitments of Christ that should be our commitments as well. Here we have Christ's commission from which our commission should flow. Christ is commissioned to be the good news, and we are commissioned to spread the good news. Christ is commissioned to tell of salvation, or excuse me, Christ is commissioned to provide salvation, and we are commissioned to tell of salvation. So the first commitment we see here is a commitment to God's glory. Verses one through three, one through three, we see the servant's commitment to God's glory. And the servant opens, he speaks here, the second member of the Trinity, he says, listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. This word coastlands doesn't just refer to those on the shores of continents. This is everyone who's far away, everyone outside of Israel. This is the worldwide Gentile audience. These are the enemies of Israel. And this is significant because, again, we're in the middle of these servant songs. We're in the middle of, of prophecies given to the nation that talk about their salvation. And this servant, the one who's gonna redeem Israel, stops and addresses the nations. This is so important that the enemies of Israel need to hear this. 
gives two commands. He says, listen, listen to me and give attention. What I'm about to say is of utmost importance. He says, the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. And when it says he named my name, it doesn't mean he gave me the name Jesus. This is being appointed to a position or an office. This is like when the president names the secretary of state. Jesus didn't wake up one morning and decide, hey, I think I'm going to provide salvation to the world. He had a job to do from the moment of conception. And this job was planned in eternity past. Before there were sinners, there was a savior. Before there was a sin, there was a plan of salvation. Such that when the Christmas story happened, the Easter story was a sure thing. Verse five, says he was formed from the womb to be his servant. That everything from his development, from conception to childhood to adulthood, all of this was in preparation for the servant's task. Verse two, it says, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. If you skip down, it says, he made me a polished arrow. Here the servant likens himself to a sword and an arrow. A sword is a a weapon for close combat, for hand-to-hand combat, right? And an arrow is for hitting people from afar. So the servant is equipped. He's ready for battle for close combat and for far combat, for anything that comes his way. Not just a sword, but a sharp sword. Not just an arrow, but a polished arrow an arrow that is rubbed free from roughness, anything that would deflect the arrow from its course, anything that would keep it from hitting its target. The servant is prepared, he's equipped, but his weapons are not swords and arrows. His weapons are likened to swords and arrows. It says in verse two, he has made my mouth like a sword and an arrow. His weapon is his mouth. At his first coming, Jesus engaged in battle with his words. The religious leaders tried to trap him with questions, but he answered every single one of them. Then he took it a step further and he asked questions of his own that exposed their hypocrisy and their wicked hearts. To such a degree that what? They plotted to kill him, to silence him. With his mouth, he preached repentance and forgiveness of sins. With words, he healed the sick. He cast out demons. And he called the dead back to life. You think of the paralytic and his friends who who open the roof and lower him down before Jesus. And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Who can do such things? Your sins are forgiven. But in order that you may know that I have the the authority to forgive sins, get up and walk. And he does. Think of the thief next to Jesus on the cross. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. Who can say such things? Isaiah tells us that the servant with his word, with a word he sustains the weary. At his second coming, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The servant is equipped and ready He has made me, he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he has hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. Like a sharp sword resting at the side, 
or an arrow tucked away in the quiver. This servant is ready for battle, but he's waiting. He's on standby, waiting for the right moment. This is, I think of this as like the get set and on your mark, get set, just waiting for the go. And then in verse three, the father speaks to the son and he says, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Now you maybe you're saying, wait a second, Jim. I thought you said the servant was Christ. Why is he called Israel then? The servant is called Israel because he's the ideal Israel. He's the ultimate seed of Abraham. He's the true Davidic king, the head of the nation, the representative, the one who will succeed where the nation has failed. He can't be the nation because his ministry is to the nation, as we will see in verse 5. But this servant is called, he's equipped, and he's kept all for the purpose spelled out here in verse 3 that God will be glorified. These verses climax in the glory of God. The servant lived for the glory of God. We too are to live for God's glory. Right? 1 Corinthians 10.31 Therefore, whether you eat or drink, what? Do all to the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Christians are supposed to please the Lord with our lives. We're to live to the glory of God. Our time, our money, our resources are to be spent to this end. Are you living for the glory of God? Do you factor the Lord into the equation of your life? And I realize this is a Sunday school answer. I'm talking to a bunch of church people. And if I polled you, I'm sure you'd all say, yeah, I'm living to the glory of God. Live to the glory of God. That's what we're supposed to do, right? But I think many of us half-heartedly live to the glory of God. We live to the glory of God in some areas of our life, but not in others. Chuck Swindoll tells a story of a man and a woman who go to a, a fried chicken fast food restaurant and they order dinner. The manager of the store had placed the financial proceeds for the day in one of the takeout boxes, and he set it aside so that he could take it to the bank, kind of camouflaged it. Well, inadvertently, the box of money was given to the man who just placed the order for the chicken. He and, his, he and the woman with him, they jump into a car, and they drive off to the park to enjoy their chicken dinner. They sit down, open up the box, and go, oh, Somebody made a mistake here, right? So the man says, we can't keep this. He gets back in the car and drives back to the store and returns the money to the manager. And the manager's elated. He says, I can't believe this. I can't believe you brought the money back. This is amazing. I need to call a paper. Don't go anywhere. I want to call a paper. I want to have them take your picture. You need to be in the paper. People need to know that there are honest people still around. The man says, Oh, no, 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 you, you can't do that. Well, why not, asks the manager. The man says, well, you see, I'm, I'm married. And the woman I'm with is not my wife. Honest in one area of his life, but not in another. Living to the glory of God in one area of his life, but not the other. Is your life completely pleasing to the Lord. Not just in some areas, but in all of your life. Do you compartmentalize? Are there things in your life that are not given over to the Lord? In 1 Kings 3, there's a description of Solomon. It says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of his father, Except, except 
that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places? Is there an accept in your life? Or are you completely living to the glory of God? Commitment to the glory of God. The second commitment we see in this text is a commitment to resting faith. In verse 4, we see the servant's commitment to resting faith. And here the son replies to the father and he says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Now with an introduction like the servant received, we would expect one long triumphal march to victory. But that's not what happens. That's not the way it goes down. After three years of ministry, the nation's leaders hate Jesus. They seek to put him to death. The crowds are fickle. They follow him for a season, but in the end, they side with the religious leaders. All he has to show for his efforts is a small band of disciples. One of them betrays him, and the others desert him when it matters most. In verse 7, he's called the despised one, the one abhorred by the nation. John, in his gospel, he puts it this way. He says, he, the servant, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. Servant has labored to the point of exhaustion. He has spent himself. For what? Seemingly nothing. My son, learning to ride a bike, he has training wheels. And sometimes the ground is uneven and the, the training wheels get stuck, prop him up, and his center wheel spins freely. No matter how hard he pedals, he doesn't get anywhere. This is what it's like. Or a cup of coffee with a vapor that's there for a moment and then gone with no lasting impact. No matter how hard the servant tried, he tried, he spent himself for nothing. No lasting impact. Got nowhere. So it seemed. When I was in college, I studied engineering. And I the same guys were in all my classes. They showed up again and again and again in my classes. And we started studying together. We called ourselves study buddies. And I started to share the gospel with my study buddies. Most weren't interested. A couple were. One in particular was. And I shared the gospel with him very regularly. Every week we got together to talk about spiritual matters. We talked about the Christian life and what it would look like to live that. Got to the point where my friend could answer all the questions he would ask. He knew how I would answer them. He knew what the scriptures said. And after some time, to Christmas break, he went home and came back and said, Jim, I've become a Christian. And I was excited. This was great. And I continued to meet with him. I continued to disciple him and teach him what it meant to live the Christian life. And then a year later, he says, I just don't believe anymore. Three years of my life invested in my friend for nothing. If he was going to walk away and reject the gospel, why didn't he do that after the first month? Why did I spend three years of my life investing in this guy? You ever felt like that? You share the gospel with your parents and it doesn't go anywhere? They reject you? You're trying to bring your children along in the Lord and they don't seem to get it. You try and share the gospel with a coworker and they make fun of you. you. Prepare a Bible study lesson for a flock group or a Sunday school class and no one pays attention. Maybe they fall asleep. You ever felt like that? You ever had hard times in ministry? You ever felt like your efforts weren't going anywhere? Our Savior felt it too. Our Savior felt it too. But he didn't stop there. 
If you continue on in verse 4, he says, Yet surely my right, literally the justice that is due me, is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. The picture here is an appeals process. Someone has been denied justice, and they appeal to a higher authority. This goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The servant looks to God, and he says, God is my judge. There is no other. He looks to God to set things right and give him what he is rightly due. And there's a lesson here. There's an important concept here because you see feelings of fruitlessness alongside confidence. Oftentimes, just because we have feelings of futility, it doesn't mean necessarily that we are doubting. And you can trust the Lord, and that doesn't mean that you never feel like your efforts are fruitless. You can feel like you're not getting anywhere. You can be puzzled. You can be perplexed without being devoid of hope. The problem is that oftentimes when we're in those situations, we listen to our feelings and we start to despair. And we need to stop ourselves in those times and look to the Lord. And that's what the servant does. And you can see at the end of verse 5 here, he says, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. This word honored, it means literally heavy. I'm weighed down on the scales of importance, weighed down in value before God. See, what the servant is doing is, is he's going from the temporal to the eternal, from the dark shadows of the cross to the brilliant splendor of the crown. As he does this, he moves from his perception what seems like no results to God, to the eternal. And now he's able to face life, right? He says, and my God has become my strength. With renewed strength, he's able to continue his ministry. He cures his feelings of futility with resting faith. And this, this is what I was overlooking in my conversations with my study buddy. The issue wasn't his conversion or lack thereof, which I was so focused on. The issue was, was I faithful to preach the gospel? See, ministry has its ups and downs. The downs will come. In your conversations with your parents, your coworkers, your children, the Bible study lessons that you prepare, the issue is not, do you have tangible results? We don't cause the growth, right? That's the Holy Spirit. You can't convert someone. You can't cause someone to grow. You can't change a heart. The Holy Spirit does that. Our responsibility is to be faithful. Were you faithful in your efforts? Did you honor him? This isn't rocket science. You know this. I'm speaking to church people. You guys know this. But it's so easy to forget this. And we need to stop ourselves in those times and refocus on eternity and the things of the Lord. If you flip this around, right? Why should I share the gospel with my coworker when I know he's going to reject it? Why should I share the gospel with this person when I know he's just going to make fun of me? It's not going to get anywhere. Because there's an eternal worth to the work. Because someday rewards will be given out. Someday you will stand before the Lord and give an account for your life. Will you be found faithful? Will you cure your feelings of futility with resting faith? Now, so far, these are great reminders for missions. But these things apply to ministry in general. Put your seatbelts on, because we're going to turn a corner here. And this is where this becomes a missions message. When we look at the third commitment, which is a commitment to all nations, found in verses 5 and 6, the servant's commitment to all nations. 
Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. Here we have the servant's mission spelled out, right? This was why he was sent. And it wasn't just to bring Israel back from Babylonian captivity. That was a part of it. But there's this phrase here, right? The servant, uh, to be his servant, to bring back Jacob to the land? No. To him, to the Lord, that Israel might be gathered to him. The servant was sent to bring the nation back to the land. That was a part of it. But it wasn't just the land. The servant is to restore, comes to restore the nation to God. See, he's going to deal with the root problem. The reason the nation was taken into captivity was because of their unrepentant hearts, because of their sin issue. And the servant is going to come and die a sacrificial death. As we read about earlier in Isaiah 53, the sin of the nation is going to be placed upon the servant. The servant is crushed for their iniquity so that they can be right with God. It's a servant's mission. And then in verse 6, the Lord does the unthinkable. He does something that seems totally crazy. He says, it is too light. Too light a thing? It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This, this is the mission that the servant was struggling with back in verse four, right? He was having a hard time with this. And now the Lord expands the mission and makes it bigger. <laughs> what? This is like signing up to run a half marathon. You're on mile eight, eight of 13, and you're gasping for breath. You're dying of thirst. You're not sure if you can make it the next few miles. And then there's an announcement made, and they say, anyone who's running the half marathon, just wanted to let you know that we are closing the half marathon stopping point, and if you're in the race, you are required to go the full 26 miles. What on earth? Why are we expanding the mission? It's because the original mission is too light a thing. It's insignificant. It's small. It's puny. It is too light a thing to show the true value of the servant. See, the God who perfectly prepared the servant for this mission is now saying that it is too light to show the true value, the true weight of the servant. He needs a greater mission to show his value. In 1992, AM General began selling a civilian version of the Humvee military jeep an off-road vehicle of epic proportions, designed for military combat and travel over the roughest terrain in the world. The civilian version, named the Hummer, included a 6.5-liter turbo diesel V8 engine, producing 300 horsepower and 520 foot-pounds of torque at approximately a mighty, get this, nine miles per gallon. Passenger and highway comfort were sacrificed for maximum mobility compared to the civilian SUVs. And as a result, 
The Hummer could ford water a waist deep. It could climb a 22-inch step, and it had a stock ground clearance of 16 inches. On top of that, Hummers were equipped with a central tire inflation system, which enabled the driver to increase or decrease the air pressure with the push of a button. And so you go off-road, push a button, air comes out of the tires, and you get better traction. And then when you come back to the highway, you push a button, air comes back in, and you can zoom along. Rather than using simple run-flat tires, which allow you to drive for another 50 miles or so once you get a flat tire, Hummers were equipped with aluminum or rubber inserts so that your tires couldn't get shot out. Unfortunately, chemical warfare-resistant paint was only available on the military version. Maximally equipped, yet most of the features on the Hummer were never used. They were sold to celebrities and the very wealthy, those who could afford the $100,000 sticker price. They were driven to parties. They hogged multiple parking places. They became status symbols. Look at me. Look at me. I drive a Hummer. The Hummer can function as a car. But what a pitiful existence for such a specialized machine. That doesn't show its true value. That's too light a thing for a Hummer to be driven as a car. The Hummer needs to go off-road it needs to tackle uneven terrain. It needs to climb mountains. It needs to forge rivers. It needs to go into combat in order for you to see the true value, the true worth of the Hummer. Likewise, a great savior is shown to be great by accomplishing a great salvation. A great savior is shown to be great by accomplishing a great salvation. See, if the servant only accomplishes his mission to Israel, then he looks like a tribal servant, a tribal savior sent by a tribal God. But the value of Christ's blood is beyond the ransom of Israel. The value of Christ's blood goes to the nations. In Revelation, in heaven they sing to Jesus, you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The goal of missions is not to win individuals from the most responsive people groups. The goal of missions is to win individuals from every people group. Not quantity, but diversity. Because diversity shows the true value of Christ. Diversity magnifies God. People ask, why do you gotta go to Africa? Why can't you stay in the States and share the gospel with your neighbor? My neighbor needs to hear the gospel and I should be sharing the gospel with my neighbor. We are commanded as Jesus' followers in Matthew 28 to go to the nations and make disciples. And so duty impels me to go, right? I tell my kids to obey and they need to obey. But it's more than just duty, right? It's more than just duty that causes me to go. The glory of God is at stake. The glory of God is magnified by whether or not I go. How is it? How is it that the glory of God is magnified through diversity? John Piper in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he gives four four explanations of how the glory of God is magnified through diversity. He says, worship that comes from unity in diversity is greater 
than that which comes from unity alone. If you think of a choir, they can sing in unison, and it sounds good. But when that choir sings different parts, and there's harmony and melody and chords in their voices, it sounds even better. Two, he says, the greatness of an object is increased in proportion to the diversity of those who recognize its beauty. My kids draw pictures, and my wife and I, we like them, we're impressed. We ooh and ah over them, right? We put them on our refrigerator. If you have a painting that hangs in a museum, and people from all over the world come to look at it, like the Mona Lisa, right? That shows the value of that work. That shows the value of that work is much greater than the one that hangs on my refrigerator. Third, Piper says, the wisdom of a leader is magnified in proportion to the diversity of people he can inspire to follow him with joy. I manage people at work. And if I can get my team, my, my group of people to follow me with joy, that's impressive. Doesn't usually happen. A lot of grumbling. But if you're the leader of a nation and you can get an entire nation to follow you and they do it joyfully, that shows a far greater leader, a far wiser leader than I at my workplace. Fourth, the fourth explanation that Piper gives, he says, diversity undercuts pride by putting the focus of our salvation on God's grace rather than any racial distinctive. God is magnified through diversity. We need to be interested in the things that God is interested in. We need to be interested in the nations. I hope that there's someone here who's listening to this saying, I need to go. I need to go to a place where Jesus isn't named and tell others about it. And if that's you, you need to talk to Pastor Dan or, or a leader in this ministry somewhere here, somebody here who can help you think through those decisions. But most of you aren't gonna go. Most of you are gonna stay here and that's not wrong, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Because you have the opportunity to be a sender. You have the opportunity to partner with those that go. And I wanna talk about one aspect of partnering with missionaries today, and that is prayer. Because there's a, a tremendous lesson in this text on prayer. We need to learn to pray in this way. And this, this, you can do this with more than just missions. Right? We, need to, we need to learn to pray according to God's priorities. Say, God, it is too light a thing that only churches in America would name your name. We ask for churches in other nations, churches in Muslim countries, Lord, that your servant may receive the reward that he deserves. It is too light a thing, it is too small a thing that I would be the only one in my family who would worship you. It is too small a thing that I would be the only one in my workplace who would name your name. Lord, give your servant the glory he deserves. Save my family members, save my coworkers so that Christ would not be belittled among them. It is too puny, it is too insignificant that I would be saved only to repeat the same sin week after week. What glory does that give your servant? Deliver me from this sin that Christ may get the glory he deserves in my life. We need to learn to pray like that. We need to learn to pray like that for the nations. I have two thoughts more specifically on how you can do that. One, write this down, Operation World. 
Operation World. Go home and Google that. And what you'll find is this website, there's a daily page. Find the daily page and set your, your internet browser to that. And what'll happen is every day when you pull up your internet, it'll change and give you a new people group to pray for and it'll give you prayer requests. And you can systematically start to pray through the nations. Just take a couple minutes before you surf the internet. The other suggestion I have for you is with the Denny family. Right, these are your missionaries. Do you pray for them? Let me back up. Do you read their newsletter? Because oftentimes those things get sent out and people don't read them. What a great way to keep up with them. And so you can keep up with them and better know how to pray for them. You have flock groups. And maybe one of you can, can make some more effort to email them and keep up with them and, and get more prayer requests. And then you come to the flock group. And when you go around and you share prayer requests, share the prayer requests for the Denny family. And then you go around and you pray. Pray for the Denny family like they are there at the flock group with you. Make them a part of that and pray for them. So here we have a commitment to all nations. There needs to be a commitment in our life as well. In Isaiah 49, we have a discussion between the Father and the Son that took place in eternity past. I'll bet you a nickel. I do that up here. I'll bet you a nickel that they are still just as stuck on this topic today as they were back then. The Father and the Son still talk about reaching the nations. The question is, does it consume you? Does the thought of bringing glory to God by reaching the nations, does it bounce around on your heart like a fly trying to get out of a jar? Or does it rest warmly on your soul? Because if it's the latter, you need to identify your spiritual unmotivations and repent. Missions isn't just something that's trendy, right? It's not just a, an app on your spiritual iPhone. We need to be consumed by it. If it consumed the king, it should consume his servants. If it consumed Christ, it should consume us. Let's pray. God, I would ask that we would be consumed by missions, that we would be consumed by bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, that you may be glorified. Lord, we ask that the lamb would receive the reward of his suffering as people from every nation, every tongue, every tribe come to worship the king. We pray this in your name. Amen.